everyone, and welcome to Exile on Bad Street. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, and we are doing yet another uh, show in the series, The Wrestling from the 80s, the John McAdam compilation series on uh, wrestling from the 80s, of course, and who else to be part of the show, as he has been on all the previous shows we've done in this series, but the man who created this series himself. The man, the myth, the legend, John McAdam. John, welcome back. And real quick, you are on Skype for the first time with me. So we have a different uh, sound to the show, I guess you would say. Hopefully a better sound. I mean, th- I'll tell you something. This series has been a lot of fun to do. And, yeah. I mean, you totally came up with it. You got to credit yourself. I mean, when you introduced the concept to me, I'm like, what? I, I don't know about this. And it's really good. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'm. I've become pretty creative lately, and uh, come up with some, you know, interesting concepts, which I'll talk about, you know, later on with my newest series we got going on, the wrestling magazine. Oh, but, you got to yeah. have me as a guest on that. I've got so many crazy <laughs> wrestling magazine stories. It's ridiculous. Oh well, well hey, he, hey, that sounds awesome to me. We'll definitely hook it up in the future, no doubt, no doubt. So. That's, that'd be awesome. I mean, but, like you know, one example, I lived in yeah. North Attleboro, Massachusetts. I would get on my bike and travel to Plainville, Massachusetts, because I didn't want people seeing me buying wrestling magazines. <laughs> this is when I was like 12, 13 years old, and now like I wasn't going to give up my cool activity just for wrestling magazines. I'm traveling. <laughs> Right, <laughs> we've been talking about in the first show. Wrestling, wrestling magazines and porn magazines have some have a strange symmetry, but in different <laughs> directions. <laughs> I, I'm not even joking. When I was like in high school, I would sooner my girlfriend catch me with a porn magazine than a wrestling magazine. <laughs> I, I mean, the former can be explained, right? Yeah. <laughs> the latter, I don't know. So, on uh, uh, one way, you're kind of a, a creep creepy guy <laughs> other way you're kind of and then and then the wrestling way you're like what are you a nerd geek what's wrong with you <laughs> exactly it's like one's creepy normal the other one's like totally not creepy normal <laughs> yeah yes oh, John, these guys are in their underwear and boots hello <laughs> well hey what you could do is i mean if you get caught with the rest of the magazines that had apartment wrestling in it, you got the best of both worlds. Oh my god, <laughs> that's breakup material right there. <laughs> oh man! But anyway, we uh, left off at Wrestling from the Eighties Volume Eight, which was a tremendous tape. So we're going to pick up with Wrestling from the Eighties Volume Nine, and this one has a lot of interesting things on there, as we have a heavy presence of a. St. Louis at Kansas City on this tape, and a good deal of Japan. So we'll have some interesting matchups and names to talk about. As uh, The first match on this tape was a no-DQ match between Bruiser Brody and Kamala from Kansas City. I remember that 80, one. 83 and 84. And you said it's good brawl, double count-out, nice rip-off finish. And uh, there's another Brody-Kamala match on this that I guess is the rematch where Kamala sneak attacked Brody. He beat Brody down. They had a bloody post-match brawl. Brody was juicing all over the place. Shocking. Four stars. Brody and Kamala had their had a deal in world class at that time. It carried over the, to Central States. And why do, you, why do you think Brody and Kamala had such good chemistry against each other? 
Good question. I mean, you know, Bruiser Brody, in my opinion, gets a really bad rap and has gotten a really bad rap for like 25 years for being quote unquote overrated. And as a result of that, I think he is the most underrated uh, classic pro wrestler out there. I mean, who else is going to get a four star match out of guys like Kamala, out of guys like Abdullah the Butcher, etc.? Um, I mean, he would just go off. I remember. I was friends with a guy named Dennis Caraluzzo who promoted in New Jersey, and he promoted Abdullah the Butcher against uh, Bruiser Brody. Uh, this was 87, and before the match, Brody comes up to him, and he's like oh, – no, Gary Hart went up to him, and he's like, okay, on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, like how much of a crazy brawl do you want this to be? And Dennis is like 11. And Gary's like, be careful what you ask for because you know these guys go crazy. According to Dennis, by the time the match was over, they had knocked down like every single chair in the audience. They had like brawled all <laughs> over that gym. There was blood everywhere. And I mean, the cops were like, you know, hey, you got to calm these guys down. If the, co- <laughs> if the cops are getting in New Jersey or getting involved, you know, you got a crazy brawl on your hands. Yeah, we just, there was just a, uh, a game changer wrestling show. And, uh, Last week, as we record this, that it got shut, basically got shut down by the police. When was this? <laughs> About last week ago, there was the a tribute show for Homicide, and uh, they they had yeah they had the show almost got shut down. A tribute police, show basically. gets shut down. You gotta love it, or almost <laughs> get shut down. Where was it? Oh fuck, I can't remember where it was at. It was in the. It was in New Jersey, I'm pretty sure. Uh, the New Jersey State Athletic Commission is, is such a historical giant pain in the ass. They have, they serve no purpose, and they just suck. Most state athletic commissions do that. <laughs> Pennsylvania is a legendary one for that. Well, for that. Yeah, Oregon really sticks out as Oregon, a bad one. Yeah. I mean, WWE wouldn't even go there, and like they're beating their chest saying, you know, oh, oh, we're the toughest state athletic commission. No, you're the stupidest. You don't get wrestling. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're, you're losing money because of your stupidity. Exactly. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Brody, yeah, Brody and Kamala, and, he, and, and Kamala doesn't come up as one of Brody's great rivals, but uh, they had a, a nice series of matches together in this this short time span. They weren't together a whole lot after this, but uh, yeah, really good stuff here yeah. in the in in this short period. I so. can think of like three really good Kamala matches: the two against Bruiser Brody that we're talking about now, and he had one really good match against David Von Erich in like '83, and that's it. I mean, Kamala was not much of a worker, and if you're getting those kind of good matches out of Kamala, I mean, what does it say about Brody? Yeah, they they gelled, they gelled yeah. right. All right, more Brody here as uh, we have two matches well against Ric Flair uh, on this tape. One, he uh, only showed about five minutes where Brody apparently won the NWA title. This is in St. Louis. The crowd went nuts, and then they reversed the decision. And then they had the the two out of three fall match at St. Louis where Brody won the only fall in 60 minutes. But, of course, title can't change hands that way. Flair retained the title. And Flair has said many times that Brody was one of his all-time favorite opponents. And they, the Flair-Brody matches – is an interesting dichotomy to all the other types of Brody matches. Uh, Brody was more of a settled down guy in these matches. He's actually working. He's not doing all this crazy stuff. And 
if you really want to see Brody in a different light, watch him in these flare matches. What do you think? Uh, I mean, one thing I want to quickly get out there. Uh, supposedly, Sam Muchnick retired at the end of 1981. I think they had his farewell show New Year's Day 1982. And it was like the, the guys who were now in charge couldn't wait to you know get rid of all that old-fashioned stuff that Sam liked to do. And kind of modernized wrestling a little bit. Well, one of the first things they did was they had the Dusty finish, where it appears the champ. Uh, we have a new champion, but the original referee saw the champ go over the top rope, and he reverses the, the decision after the challenger has been celebrating in the ring with the belt. Supposedly, that killed St. Louis when they did that, because that audience was just not used to that kind of nonsense, and the crowds went way down. And I, I know a guy a little bit off topic, but supposedly when uh, they did that with Hulk Hogan and Nick Bockwinkle in 83, supposedly it killed. I forget if it was St. Paul or Minneapolis, but it really hurt that town as well. So it's, it's just not not a good finish. No, and, and it's, it's, it was ne never the greatest finish in the world. I mean, you could you could do it once, but if you if you do it all the time uh -huh. or do it, you know, or do it way too often, then. They'll kill a territory. But regarding Flair and Brody, what, what what's what stands out about the Flair Brody matches? I mean, you want to talk about two guys who are just completely different. Flair is smaller and he's doing the pretty boy gimmick. Brody is huge and he's doing the caveman gimmick, but he's a really great athlete. So I mean I, I thought the Brody and Flair matches were great. I know Rick has stated, as you pointed out, that Brody was one of his favorite opponents. Um I would have really liked I – and mean, we all talk about how if Brody had not been killed, uh, wow, 31 years ago, how he would have maybe – Almost to the day as we yeah, record this. It as a matter passed. of fact. Uh, yeah, Brody, Adonis, and one of the Kelly brothers all went down like at the same time. Um, we all talk, all talk about like you know maybe Brody would have headlined a WrestleMania against Hogan or maybe he would have headlined a SummerSlam against Hulk Hogan. I really would have liked to see to have seen something worked out where he went into JCP and challenged Flair for the title as you know Flair is a babyface, Brody is a heel. I mean that would have been that would have drawn huge crowds and it would have been just great to watch. You know when that could have happened? It could have happened in '89 when Crockett's out of the picture and Flair, you know, Flair's got more power. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim Hurd. Like him or not, but Jim Hurd was a St. Louis guy, so he knows Brody very well. So that could have happened. That could have been something that could have been the cards in '89. We could have had Flair and Brody, you know, at the same, you know, same time period, or you know, around Ter Flair and Terry Funk. It, it could have been Brody yeah. instead of Terry Funk. Could have. I mean, you could, I mean, think about it. You could have they, they let yeah. Terry Gordy, at least at first, they would let Terry Gordy go to Japan and wrestle in the NWA when he wasn't there. They did the same thing for Stan Hansen. Yeah, I mean, they, they were open for, to let guys do that, Dr. Death. So, I mean, if you if I you mean, were a big they, enough star, yeah, they let you do it. So, yeah, Brody – I've never really thought about that before. You know, Brody very well could have been in that 1989 NWA run. And, Absolutely. They were offering contracts to everyone. I mean, you know, they would make guys like Don Morocco say no to them. They were, you know, we, we've, I think we've talked about this before. I mean, I, I please, I'm not trying to be blasphemous here, but I always thought that Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, and J.J. Dillon all leaving the NWA right around the same time, fall, early winter of 1988, was a blessing in disguise because – 
they needed to shake that promotion up. They needed something new other than the Four Horsemen versus the world. And yeah, they needed new blood and they got new blood like Muda, Pillman, etc. And Funk, Steamboat and Brody would have fit right in. Had he been willing to do it and had they been willing to, you know, make concessions for Brody that maybe they wouldn't be willing to make for a Brian Pillman or a Norman the Lunatic, you know, like, yeah, he gets to go to Japan for 10 weeks a year or whatever it is and joe pedicino another one of brody's close allies is there i mean there's a lot of a lot of things there that this gary arts there so i mean there's, there's a lot there's a lot there too and, well abdullah was there you know yeah. at around that time too so yeah i mean there's things that could have been could have happened. No, I I wish I could have seen that. I wish Brody had not booked himself for Puerto Rico on that fateful weekend and just yeah. we could have seen what would have happened. Yeah. I know it. Alright, next next match on here. We had a no DQ match for the NW Worldway Tiles. Harley Race defending against Ted DiBiase in Kansas City. No finish shown, but what air was four stars. We've heard a lot about the race DiBiase matches that they had in St. Louis and Really, the only complete match we have is uh, a match they had in all Japan uh, in October of 83 when Harley went over there as a champion and defended against Ted. Um, it's, it's a shame that DiBiase didn't have more high-profile NWA title matches in his career that we have on tape. I mean, they happened, mostly in the St. Louis, ter- you know, St. Louis, Kansas City. But, man, I mean, it's just the thing that we – when it comes to Ted DiBiase that we don't have and man, it would have been awesome to see it. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously we've got the, the famous match from 1985 against Ric Flair when Murdoch busted DiBiase open. Um, and just the reality is that Ted DiBiase did not wrestle the majority of his career in an NWA territory. He was a Mid-South guy primarily until he wound up going to the WWF. And by the time he was done in the WWF, the NWA title well, it just wasn't what it was. And when he was in Georgia in, in, in 83 and 84, he was a heel. So he wasn't going to wrestle Flair. That's a good point. Because Flair's, wor- Flair, Flair's working babyface. He had so. a match against Dusty, of all people, a babyface match in 1981. Yeah. Which I don't think there's yeah, any the footage Omni. of. No, but it was at the Omni, too. Yeah. yeah, so that's pretty crazy. I mean, so. I think we've talked about this before. Ted DiBiase, they were going to put the title on him in 1981, um, and for whatever reason, they changed their minds, and they, it was, they were going to try to make Ric Flair and Ted DiBiase the second coming of Dory Funk Jr. and Jack Briscoe, and it, it just didn't work out for whatever reason. Yeah, shame. Another race match here. Race, uh, now not, not the champion anymore, wrestles Giant Baba in St. Louis in 84. And Baba beats Race. So race, race doing a rare job in St. Louis to Baba, which we all know the deal there. <laughs> we know who the boss yes, is. Yes, <laughs> exactly. You know, getting a little bit off topic, one of the things that really infuriated me, um, when Hulk Hogan and Harley Race went around the horn in 1987, I really feel like Hulk Hogan went out of his way to make Harley Race look bad um, in every town. But supposedly in St. Louis, he really made Harley look bad to the point where Harley's, right, Harley's wife kind of lost her mind at ringside. Well, I guess he never forgot Harley pulling that gun on him. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, Hogan was Hogan. He had the power, so... 
Yeah, he was. He could sandbag him and get away with it. I mean, like I said, just Good to do Lord. that to race in St. Louis, I think kind of sucks. But from yeah, I mean, from what I understand yeah, right petty. now, Harley is not doing well, so we keep him in our thoughts. I don't want to see any bad news anytime soon on Harley. That Junker's tough, man. I mean, you hear stuff about him, and you know he'll pop up somewhere every now and then, and and then he'll get right back in, you know, in a bad shape, but uh. He fights, man, just like his wrestling oh, yeah. career. He's fighting. He's definitely fighting it. All right, next we have a historical feature on Ricky Dozan, showing clips against him against the death, Freddie Blaster, Destroyer. And uh, I've seen this feature on another tape. It was really interesting to see the how Japanese wrestling was when Ricky Dozan was reigning, you know, strong over there. It, Japanese wrestling at that time period, you could, I mean, say was – Basically, almost the same as American wrestling. Yeah, you know, a lot of ways. And Ricky Dozan was king. I mean, he—I really love that kind of footage because it's almost like a—it's like a time machine. You know, things really were different back in the fifties and sixties when Ricky Dozan was around. I don't think he was around in the sixties. Yeah, all but. of his major, yeah, all of his major rivals were were mostly American or European. You know, I mean. It, 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 it's not like Japanese wrestling that will become, you know, down the line. So it's really, really cool seeing that stuff. Ricky Dozan, you know, he's another one. What if, you know, what if he doesn't get killed? Really? You know, well, how, how is Japanese wrestling after that? You know, it's crazy to think about. I, that. You know, I never stopped and thought about that before, but you're absolutely right. It would be a completely different world had he not been killed. You know, I, I mean, I, I think most of us know this, but when Ricky Dozan, when he had major matches against like Luthez, Fred Blassie, more than half of Japan's population was in front of the TV watching it. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, it was it was a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And his opponents would be made for life. Mm-hmm. The Destro- destroyer, you know, guys like that. I mean, they're they were made men forever because they would wrestle Ricky Dozan. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, next we have two back-to-back Bruiser Brody Jumbo Shiruta matches from All Japan. Uh, the first one, they both bleed. Jumbo goes crazy, strangles Brody with his chain, three and three-quarter stars. And then uh, the next match, they start out wrestling, then bloody pull-apart ball, three and a half stars. Brody and Jumbo is another one. I mean, bro- I mean, they had a lot of great matches against each other, and Brody brought out some- stuff out of Jumbo that not many other people could bring out. It's like, Jumbo was kind of a stoic guy at times uh younger jumbo was was a fiery more fiery but you know the early 80s early to mid 80s jumbo was kind of you know yeah i mean kind of a, a guy that just went out there and did his thing but brody would, would bring it out of him bring the heat out of him yeah early jumbo is so good and then he had kind of a, a stagnation in the middle of his career and then he got better again i don't know if he was injured or he was just disillusioned or what but i mean early jumbo i saw a match terry funk defending the nwa title against jumbo saruta and wow it was one of the best matches from the 70s i've ever seen yeah jumbo i mean jumbo has this important the 80s yeah where i mean he wins the awa world heavyweight title and this is during that that time period where he's he has really good matches but something's missing and then when choshu and, th- and that crew comes in that's when it starts mm-hmm. I mean, really, he starts coming back up. And then when Tenru turns, oh, yeah. You know, then we get a whole different jumbo. And that's, you know, that's when he really starts having some of his all-time classic matches after that. But, uh, but yeah, he, has a, he had quite the interesting career. And Brody, of course, 
was a king in, in Japan. So, yeah, they had good, really good matches. All right, next we go back to St. Louis. We have a battle royal won by Barry Wyndham, who, you know, will come in the places like St. Louis every so often because of his name power. Uh, there was a match. There was a match we just talked about in between the sheets recently when we did the 1984. Listen to this tag match. Carrie Von Erich and Barry Wyndham against Ric Flair and Jerry Blackwell. That's a match. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, Carrie, Car- you know, Carrie in 1984 was still really, really good. Barry had just gotten really, really good. And uh, Ric Flair, what else can you say? And Blackwell was an excellent worker, especially for a guy his size. So that's a very interesting match. Yeah, and just the team of Carrie and Barry. You know, they, they, I, don't, I don't know how many times they ever teamed in their career with each other. I mean, what many. And two young guys at the mags loved them. I mean, yeah, that's, that's quite the team. <laughs> Definitely quite the team. And that's like the, and that's what they did about St. Louis was. And that's why St. Louis always was a cool place for me to read mm-hmm. about, because that would be a place where you would get these, these matches like that between guys who normally wouldn't work together. Yeah. Um, and all three out of those four guys, the, the exception being Wyndham held the Missouri title in 1983. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating territory. I wish there was more St. Louis out there. Yeah, there's a little bit, but not a lot. So yeah, it would be nice to have some more for sure. Maybe a pop. Who knows? Ric Flair, Holly Race, Brawl on St. Louis TV, and then we have uh, Buzz Sawyer. We're going to Georgia real quick. Buzz Sawyer power slamming Johnny Rich in the concrete. That was crazy. That was a that was a crazy spot for 1983 because. Yeah, the the studio floor, and there ain't no give there. And Buzz, Buzz Power Sam Johnny Rich pretty damn good on that floor. I was going to say, he's, he's stiffed and pretty good. Last night, I, I was going through some results, and Buzz Sawyer, we know, had a very brief run in the WWF. He was supposed to wrestle in the New Jersey Meadowlands, Mil Moscaris. I mean, talk about just a weird match with a style clash. It never happened, but it was scheduled. Bulldog Buzz Sawyer in the WWF too, not Mad Dog. Bulldog, Bulldog Buzz, Buzz Sawyer with Will Albano as his manager for about fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah, nineteen eighty four Buzz Sawyer, just what a what a career arc he was on. Started in Georgia, got fired, went to Memphis, left there, went and worked uh, for Crockett a little bit, went up and did the Toronto shows, uh, went to WF. Um, just bounced around with the Florida was possessed by Kevin mm-hmm. Sullivan. Um, he just was all over the place in 84. Was, you know, a, a guy who had been, you know, a major star on national television, you know, with on TBS and, had so many problems going on, he just couldn't stay somewhere for a period of time. No, and you know, I, I liked Buzz Sawyer. I remember seeing him when he was in Florida in 1981 and being very impressed by him. Um, he had just turned heel, and they had a match with him and Jack Briscoe on TV, and it was just a dynamite match. I mean, obviously Jack Briscoe was still near his prime, and Buzz was coming up. Um, but here's here's the thing: I, as much as I liked Buzz Sawyer, I don't think his talent matched his push in Georgia in 1983. I think he was overpushed. I mean, it was like they were pushing him. They were giving him like a Hulk Hogan level push, and he was going to turn babyface. He did turn babyface, and they were going to build the promotion around him, which I just don't think you can. He's a guy you can do that with. Ole, Ole Anderson loved Buck yeah. Sawyer, and 
if Buzz didn't have his personal problems, who knows what would have happened in 84. And then, of course, Ole brings him back, you know, in, in, in 85 in Championship Wrestling Georgia. And, yeah, I mean, he gives him chance after chance, but Buzz's problems throughout his career hindered him in many ways and sadly cost him his life at a young age. 32 too. years old. That's That's insane. And his career was basically over when he broke his wrist at the Clash of the Champions in 90. I mean, he was never on a major platform again. I think he was just wrestling indies in Northern California. Exactly. Sad waste of talent. Oh, indeed. All right, next, a a big match in the history of wrestling. Ric Flair defeats Dusty Rhodes at Kansas City to win the NWA World Heavyweight title. A match joined in progress. Um... Yeah, I mean, this is Flair's first win for the NWA title. And you watch this match and see it at Memorial Hall in Kansas City. <laughs> it's just so odd to see Ric Flair winning his first major NWA World Heavyweight title match. Yeah, suppose. In, in that building. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Flair was not a Central State slash Kansas City guy at all. Um, I mean, I, I remember I haven't read Flair's book and uh, since it came out like 15 years ago, but I remember he was not pleased about the choice of where that title change went on because Dusty was too busy kind of uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Protecting himself. So he kind of had it in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but I remember the day. It was October 3rd, 1981. I was watching TBS Wrestling for the first time, and Ric Flair comes out with the NWA title. And it, it was back in the day where something like that just – blew you away i cared so much about the title and you know who was holding it and you know just my imagination starts running away with me as far as you know how long is he going to have it you know the kind of matches he's going to have is going to go to florida and defend against dusty all the time yes he was you know that sort of thing absolutely absolutely and uh yeah, it, 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 Dusty losing a title in Kansas City makes sense because Dusty's not really going to Kansas City, so it, it's fine for him to be protected there. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't lose a title in, at the Omni. He wasn't going to lose a title, you know, in Florida for damn sure, so. Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's do Kansas City. Yeah, and they ran an angle in Florida where the assassin had injured Dusty's knee right before that title change took place. So in Florida, all the heat was on the assassin. Yeah, well, that's a smart thing to do. You know, it's a way to, to work around that for the locals. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I still think Greensboro would have made a lot more sense. It would have been tough because Flair's the baby would have been a baby face. Dusty wouldn't. I don't think Dusty was going to go in there and be booed. Uh, you, you know what? You're right. It, it would still be the right thing to do, just not the right thing to do for Dusty. Exactly. <laughs> and that's all that mattered. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of Florida, we got a Florida match on here real quick. Dusty Rhodes against Adrian Street in Lakeland, Florida, where Adrian cut some of Dusty's hair. This happened in uh, spring 83. Adrian leaves Memphis, goes to Florida, and Dusty falls in love with him and push, gives him a fairly big push. And Dusty lets Street do some things to him that you know he wouldn't let a whole lot of other heels do, such as cut his yeah. hair. Because of his hair. I mean, I... Uh, I had I had that clip and yeah. I remember it. You know, for Adrian Street, managed by J.J. Dillon, and then he's got uh, Leroy Brown, who's calling himself 
Elijah Akeem or something like that. And he, Adrian Street's literally handcuffed to this guy, showing off a lock of Dusty Rhodes' hair. And he was, I mean, look. I liked Adrian Street. I want to be on podcast bashing him all the time. But even next to J.J. Dillon, he was small. He was small, but he was – the thing about Adrian Street was how that if they pushed him the right way, which some promoters did, Bill Watts especially, would, would push him as a tough guy. Oh, yeah. Where you could, you could believe that against a bigger dude, he could take him down and more than hold his own. So – yeah, looks if, especially if you go by you know optics, you see Adrian Street in that gimmick, and then you see him you know doing the stuff he did, but then he gets but then he gets starting the ring and he's like, my God, this dude's you know this tough as shit, you know that's that adds a whole new element to the storyline. And I watched Adrian Street shoot an interview recently on the High Spots Wrestling Network he did with Rob Einstein, and he talked about that was what was key to his character was. He would go out there and do, you know, do the skipping around this, that, and the other. But when he wrestled, he wrestled. I mean, he went in there and he he worked, you know, he worked that British Europe, you know, style, that Wigan style. And he said that was key for him because he didn't go out there and wrestle like a quote unquote sissy. You yeah. know, he worked he worked as one of the toughest dudes around, and that added to his added to his gimmick. He said because, you know, the fans would be like, man, why? Why does he do all this stuff and dress like that, like he does when he's so tough? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, about five years ago, I went on this craze. I, it used to be that that style bored me. And then I started getting into it. Like, oh, I would say it was like 2012, 2013. Like, you know, I'd want to sit down and watch every Les Thornton match I could get my hands on or every St- early Steve Regal match. And I've, I've grown to appreciate that style. It took me a while, but I'm here. Oh. Oh, it's fun, yeah. man. World, all, the world of sports stuff, that's, that's really solid wrestling, man. That's some great, great stuff on there that you'll never see anywhere exactly. else. Exactly. It's so, so uh, quintessential for, for where it's from. You know, it, you don't see that a whole lot. So, and Adrian Street, you know, came from that. I mean, you can look on YouTube and see Adrian Street, early Adrian Street matches from the 70s, you know, on World of Sport. And, yeah, it's, it's pretty great stuff. All right, we continue with Kansas City here. We got a few matches from Kansas City. We got Ric Flair versus Wrestling 2 in Kansas City. Um, I think it was an NWA World Title match. Not quite sure. And Wrestling 2 never really were Kansas City. But again, here he is in 83, at the end of 83, early 84. Getting a shot at Ric Flair's NWA World Title. So you know what that might be reflective of is that Mr. is how much impact WTBS is having. Because, I mean, I don't know what the cable situation in Kansas City was, but if everyone got, you know, WTBS, okay, you've got a ready-made star coming in to do a spot. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Rand Wrestling, too, was a, was a name guy, absolutely, you know. So, He's in the magazines. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's better than Ric Flair defending against Mike George every <laughs> time, so, I mean, why not? And then we have another match in Kansas City, the Grapplers, Tony Anthony and Lynn Denton. Uh, going against Bulldog, Bob Brown, and Ted Oates. Well, three out of four ain't bad. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Ted Oates being a, a, a Georgia guy, it seemed like the only places that he would work was Georgia, Continental, Southeastern, and Central States. He's a guy we talked about recently on the, on the 84 Between the Sheets show. Him and his brother, Jerry, they were really good, but they just 
they were homebodies and didn't really do a whole lot. I mentioned the first time I got TBS was was October 3rd, uh, 1981. They added it to our cable system October, starting October 1st. And the Oates Brothers in a squash match was the first match I ever saw on the WTBS show. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget against and, uh, who, maybe Carl Fergie and someone else. I'm, I'm not sure. But, yeah, that was the very very first match. And Georgia had such a different style than the WWF. Their TV matches were competitive. The guys actually had a wrestling match. And, you know, it, it was, like I said, it was competitive. Both the baby faces and heels would actually fight back, which was an anomaly after you've watched the WWF for so long. So, they were a good tag team. I'm, I'm not sure why they didn't catch on somewhere. Yeah, and same could be said about uh, the grapplers. Uh, Tony Anthony Lynn didn't. So, and the question I asked you is, what did you prefer them as, the grapplers or the Dirty White Boys? Uh, I would say the Dirty White Boys because by this time in wrestling, the masked wrestler era was just about over. So you've got to change with the times and come up with a different gimmick. And yeah, I, I would say the Dirty White Boys, even though I, I liked the grapplers. Um, when I – no, I want to talk about my watching cable, wrestling on cable for the whole show. But um, when I first got cable, I had this show called World League Wrestling, and it was when the grappler was the North American champion in Mid-South. So he's you know the top guy in that promotion, and I bought him as the top guy. It wasn't like, oh, what's this guy doing with the title? Like, I totally bought him. It was the way it was pushed. Exactly. And Yeah, and, and, and Lynn Denton had a successful run as a grappler for uh, two or three years there before Tony Anthony came aboard as his partner. And, uh, yeah, and then, then he transitioned to being a, a tag team guy for, for years after that. But, yeah, I, I, love, I love watching the Dirty White Boys in Mid-South. I thought, I thought that was really good stuff there. And it's just different, a different look for them. You know, they're unmasked, they're doing their gimmick, you know, they got the great song. So, yeah, it's a nice little dichotomy between them and the, the grapplers yeah. gimmick. And Bulldog Bob, Bulldog Bob Brown, uh, one of the worst top guys in the territory ever. Um, I mean, considering the, I mean, Central States by this, Central States was never like a major territory and I guess um, – what's his name? Bob Geigel felt like he could rely on Bulldog Bob Brown. But you know what? And at the end of the day, he was terrible. He just stood out as being just too old and not in shape, And but he's in the main events anyway. It made no sense. No, it made them look like a joke a lot of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. When you see other other ter- – especially in the eights, when wrestling is becoming more of a cosmetic mm-hmm. thing where it's getting you know young and hip and – Here's Bulldog Bob Brown and Rufus, Rufus R. Jones and guys like that in this place. Like, hmm. I uh, am one more Kansas City match. Buzz Sawyer. Here he is in Kansas City in 84 uh, during his around the country sh- uh, stuff here against crazy Luke Graham, who had a run here in Central States. Talk about another guy who had an odd career. Crazy Luke Graham. I know you saw him in WWWF uh-huh. in the 70s. And he would just disappear for a while and just pop back up, and here he was, you know, in Central State. I mean, here we are in 1984. I remember in 78, after Superstar Billy Graham lost the title, they announced that they were bringing in his brother, Crazy Luke Graham. And I saw him. It was one of those times. I mean, I was a kid. I kind of bought whatever they put in front of me. 
And when Crazy Luke Graham came out, I was like, oh, no. Oh, God. And he was, you know, he was old. What can I say? And he wasn't in shape. I didn't like his gimmick. You know, I never liked the crazy guy gimmick unless Terry Funk's doing it. Um, But, you know, just walking around confused. And here we are six whole years later, and they blew the dust off Crazy Luke Graham again. Yeah, of course, it was Central States. Yeah. So, I mean, if uh, they continue yeah, to pound on central states, their television was the worst. They had this really dark arena and this two cameras. Cinema Moore Hall, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. talk about just making something bad even worse. Like, get some TV lights. That's all we're saying. Exactly. That's when you watch that Flair Dusty, man. You're betting this, you know, grand stage. Flair winning the NWA World Heavyweight title. No, it's in some dark, dark and, uh, you know, building that looks like it was like a you know place that you would see boxing matches and wrestling matches in the 50s and 60s and have smoke clouds hanging around and that's it, what it was you know and that's what it was exactly all right now we have some st louis matches but wf is st louis as they have invaded paul orndorff against rocky johnson where you know that Orndorff's really talented and probably should have been an even bigger star than he was. You still believe I still that? believe that. Um, I think one thing that might have hurt Orndorff a little bit is that for, for whatever reason, I don't know what that reason was, his career didn't really catch on until he went to Mid-Atlantic in 1978. He was in Memphis. He was in Southeastern, and he just didn't get a lot of exposure in those territories. Then when he leaves Mid-Atlantic and he goes to to Mid-South and gets a huge push with the North American title twice at least. Um, for whatever reason, Mid-South Wrestling was undercovered in the Aptor magazines and the Kiter magazines. You wouldn't see the pictures of the Mid-South stars. You wouldn't have articles about Mid-South Wrestling. So I think that all worked against him. And, you know, I think by the time he got to Georgia in 82 and he got the big push in Georgia, I'm looking at a guy who easily if they if the NWA was like, okay, we need a new champion for whatever reason Flair's not working out, here's the guy. Yeah, and he was on Georgia too. I mean, he was on TBS too, and then and they're one of their greatest years ever. Yes. He's a top guy, national heavyweight champion. We talked about this before on the show. I mean, he's a guy that just has the feel of this guy could be the NWA Worldweight champion. And it doesn't happen. He stays in Georgia a while. Um his push kind of subsides there towards the end. He goes to New Japan a good bit in 83. Then, where does he go? Central States. <laughs> <laughs> he works in Central States. He, do, he does some work in Southeastern. Then he goes to WF, and that's when the Mr. Wonderful gimmick becomes what it is, what we all know and love, because he never really did the gimmick that way anywhere no. until he went to WF. And you see him, in, in, and he's in the WF before – Everything blows up. He's there late in '83, but it's before Hogan's uh-huh. there, so it's still it's still that old WWF in a way. And Orndorff's there, and you see, man, he just sticks out like a sore thumb here. This is a guy who he seems like he's too major league to be in in this promotion. And then you know Hogan shows up, and then they start doing the big changes, and he fits right in. But yeah, he, I mean, and and the proof of the pudding regarding how I mean, look how well he drew with Hogan. In 86, you know, they had a tremendous drawing feud. The big event, Toronto, all that stuff, man. He was a guy that people believe was a star, but yeah, you're right. Um, He could have been even bigger. And probably maybe part of that was his his, uh, arm injury situation. Do you think that? 
played a role in it for his later um, career? It, it did, but I think by the time that really kicked in, um, which was – I mean I, I it looked like he might have had it as early as 84, but it became problematic like 86. You could tell one arm was just way bigger than the other one. Um, one thing I wanted to say about Orndorff, it, it's funny how he personally – transitioned from like the old NWA style to the then new WWF style. I mean, just his physique. I mean, when he was in Georgia and mid South, I mean, he had that unbelievable athletic looking physique when they they tell you, Oh yeah, he uh, played football. I mean, they made up a story that he played for the new Orleans saints, but you believed it. And, he was drafted by the Saints. He may have played in preseason, but he never played a regular season game. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I mean, think about how good you have to be just to get drafted by the New Orleans Saints. Come on, I mean, yeah. <laughs> one guy who went to my high school, the whole like five year cycle of me being there, meaning you know the guys who were seniors when I was uh, a sophomore and the guys who were sophomores when I was a senior. One guy got drafted in the NFL that whole cycle, and he didn't make a team. So. You know, you have to be so good, and that's the thing. He he had that athleticism, but then when he went to the WWF, uh, he he had that like blown up look. You know, he was more of a bodybuilder's physique. And it's just funny how you know, well, he his physique transitioned from you know the way he needed to be in one place to the way he needed to be in the other. Yeah, and Paul Ondorf played college football. He was a running back, and his quarterback that was handing the ball off to him was Freddie Solomon. They would become an all-pro receiver in the NFL. Right. So, yeah, University of Tampa. Now USF. All right. Yeah. Um, and then we have Hulk Hogan versus Big John Studd, also from St. Louis. Studd was managed by Ronnie Piper, who calls Hulk to get counted out. Hogan went out to Piper, two-on-one, beat down on Hogan. The booking of Roddy Piper in, for the first few months of 84 is interesting because He's more a manager uh-huh. for a while, and then they transition him into a wrestler. Why do you think they went that direction with Pac? I will tell you. Um, I think people talk about the WWF sometimes like it was this well-oiled machine and everything was really well planned out. I mean it's stuff like Piper coming in that shows you that it wasn't. I mean – they signed him, and I think they had no idea what to do with him. Piper's pit kind of happened by accident. Um, they, you know, they brought him in, like you said, as a manager. He managed Orndorff. He managed Schultz. Uh, he occasionally managed Stud. He might have managed. I don't know. I don't know who else he managed. But then, within months, I, I would say by March, April, he was completely out of that role. So, you know, I mean, it all worked out. But I mean, they, they kind of took you know threw spaghetti up against the wall and saw what stuck well it, I, you know the, the the moment that changed his debit career forever was, was the piper split with snooker i mean that that that's when he became a wrestler only at that point in time i mean that was it that was the big thing because he was in he was in done kind of little different things but that's the moment that the the switch turned on in his WF career Right you know what I I, th- I might disagree a little bit. What I think might have changed it more than anything wasn't it was well at first the 
the emergence of Piper's Pit, where you have this heel having this crazy segment on where he starts fights with the baby faces. But then when it really transitions is when he had Frank Williams on. And there was there had been no violence yeah. on Piper's Pit until that day that he just suckered Frank Williams and beat the crap out of him. And by the way, that was the last we ever saw of Frank. And it's like, you know, now it's like anything can happen on this program. And with Snooker, anything did. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's maybe the first Piper's Pit that, you know, really had, you know, stands out. And then, of course, Andre slapping him was another one. And then, uh, then the Snooker one, of course, you know, like I said, just boom, everything. Um, Hogan and Stud. Stud was, uh, one of his first big rivals in the, in 84. And, uh, they they went everywhere with that match, so uh, it, it gave Hogan credibility to be the dude like John Studd in that. Year. Oh, it definitely did. And remember, John Big John Studd came into the WWF fall of 1982. Uh, he did the match against Backlund. Uh, in Madison Square Garden, January 83. Uh, he did the match against Backlund in Boston, January 83. So, you, so he's been around for a while, but the WWF product is new in the markets they hadn't been in before. So you could definitely get mm-hmm. away with doing – more than get away with doing Hulk Hogan and Big John Studd in a market that they just arrived at. Exactly, exactly. Next is a very famous match. Andre the Giant versus Stan Hansen. New Japan, September 1981. You said it was one of the best Andre matches you've ever seen. That is an amazing match. Uh, it's not long, but man, it, it's it's just full of action. Crowd's going crazy. Hanson and, and is is awesome. Andre is still mobile and it, it can still do things. He, I mean, he was. This was just. A tremendous match. It really was, and one of the, th- the good things about it is, let's face it, he's Andre the Giant. He is absolutely huge, and you you put a guy against Andre, just a normal-sized pro wrestler, and you're like, okay, he doesn't have a chance. Stan Hansen was a big guy, and you you could see him more than having a chance against Andre the Giant because he had that size and bulk. Absolutely, absolutely. Did you see that the WWF has this new guy? I forget where he's from. Somewhere in Africa, he's legitimately seven foot three. He played college basketball at um, University of Florida. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, he was a, he was a college basketball player. Yeah, he he's he's got the size. He's very green, but he's got the size. So if they can if they can teach him. How to work? I mean, there's there's money to be made with this. And this guy, yeah, if he can even learn how to work a little bit, and if he played college basketball, he's he's an athlete. I mean, they've they've got something here, like a major WrestleMania, headlining WrestleMania kind of that level star. And charisma, of course, he's going to definitely you know help help he has charisma. So uh, yeah. There's something there that they got tools to work with. Let's see how it goes. I mean, then again, Definitely they almost goes. blew it with the rock with that candy ass Rocky Maivia gimmick that they gave them. So <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Yeah. That was a different time and place, but yeah, you're right. They did. They did. <laughs> they did. All right. Now, next day you have clips of David Von Erich's funeral from uh, Japan television and just a sad thing. Um, let's go back. I mean, go back to when you found out about David Von Erich's death. How'd you, uh, 
How'd you take? Uh, you know, it, it started as an, an is this true thing. A friend of mine calls me and he says he's read in USA Today that David Von Erich has died. Now, and let's be honest, you know, we're, we're young. We play pranks on each other, but this would be kind of a random prank, uh, David Von Erich. So I hear about it and it's kind of in my head, like, is this true? And then I find out while watching world class television that it's true. When David, I didn't like him. I did not like him at all when he was wrestling and I saw him fighting the Freebirds and this guy, you know, he looks like a giant praying mantis and he's flying the Texas flag around. I didn't like, I hated him. And, you know, it, it's just different. Like, oh my God, he's, he's, he's really dead. He's, and yeah, it, it's, it really shook me up to be honest with you. Because, you know, you know, I, I only knew him as a fictional character, and I knew he was had to be a different person than he appeared on TV, but I really hated the guy who was on TV, and then I'm like, you know, you hear about him dying, and you feel really conflicted. I have grown to like David Von Erich, obviously. Oh, yes. And, uh, yeah, Dave, and this, you know, a young guy like that dying, you know, when he did, the way he did, and it's a total shame. Total shame. It really is. Absolutely. I mean, I've said this a million times. And I apologize if you've heard me say it for the millionth time. David was so young that had he not died, he would have been part of the Monday Night Wars. He was basically the same age as Bret Hart, Scott Hall, uh, Kevin Nash, etc. When I say basically, I mean a couple of those guys were older than him. Yeah, very easily could have. He could very easily could have been been around, still hanging around that time. You're right. Who knows? And who knows how different world class would have been if he would have stayed alive as well. And another thing that you know that you would have seen a different version of his death being announced as WWF announced it on television and had a moment of silence for yeah. him. Which was crazy. Yeah, and they had Michael Hayes go out and talk about how, you know, David Von Erich was a warrior and how much Michael Hayes respected him. And I thought that that was a nice touch. If yeah. they had gone out there yeah, and had reality. the Freebirds laughing about it, like that would have been the shits. And I'm glad they didn't do yeah. that. And it's, yeah. You know why I say that? Because I could easily see World Class doing something like that. Well, you could, but you know what? When Gino died, you know, Carrie did the same thing when, in his speech about Gino. Yeah. You know? I mean, give them credit for doing that. They never turned any of those real-life tragedy deaths. On, in that moment so to say, in those moments, uh, into any type of cheap angles. Later on, yeah, but in those moments, yeah, they did. And you, you got to remember, too, that uh, in real life, Carrie and Gina were tight. Yeah, they were. All right, next, we get the the new fabs, Eddie Gilbert and Tommy Rich against Coco Ware and Norvell Austin, where both teams were babyface at this point in time, but Coco and Norvell turned heel. And then debuted their Michael Jackson-esque PYT's gimmick. Speaking of wrestling being in the current yes. times where Central States wasn't, Memphis was always on the on the on the pulse of what's going on in pop culture. And uh, here's Coco Norvell with the uh, the Michael Jackson beat it video uh, era uh, jackets and stuff, the sequin gloves, and you know Coco and Norvell. They had been around a while. They've been in the territory, different gimmicks, different, you know, they were both face and heel, this and the other. This just totally re-energizes them and, and gives them something of a new new life, didn't it? 
I mean, I think Coco Ware, those two tag teams are two of the most underrated tag teams in history. Um, people, you know, Rich and Gilbert did not get over. There's a, a lot of reasons for it, but they were really good in the ring. Yeah, they were as a tag. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, look at their matches with Phil Hickerson and the Spore. Look at their matches with the PYTs. They had tremendous matches. Yeah, I mean, Tommy Rich at this point was really getting out of shape. Um, and there was a, we're about to talk about that too, oh, by the way. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll go, I'll go ahead and bring it. I'll go ahead and bring uh, it up. Uh, now, after this, there's a funny, you, you say it's a funny interview with a new fabulous ones where the new fabs bay faces with a problem. The fans hate them <laughs> here. Tommy basically begs the fans not to, and tries to get some sympathy. And as you know, the Tommy should try to get a haircut. And shed an extra 25 pounds, he wore around his midsection. <laughs> I'm full of advice. <laughs> so, yeah, now you can talk about that. I mean, he had, he definitely had put on some pounds, and he had that sheepdog haircut going. Yeah, and, you know, apparently he was more I, – I, I have heard that he was more interested in his connections outside of the wrestling business than the wrestling business himself, itself. I mean, you know, I, I was a Tommy Rich fan. I liked him in Georgia. Uh, it was sad to see him wrestling in a uh, – you know, he should have been a major star. He should have been wrestling for Crockett and being on top of the card. He should have been in the WWF, um, but instead he's in a tag team in Memphis. Teamed with Tom, with Eddie Gilbert, who at this time was not a star. He had just gotten done being not even middle of the card in the WWF. So it was just odd at the time seeing those two together. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And the fab, the original fabs left under such odd circumstances that you bring two guys in who have both worked in the territory as themselves. There's a history there. They both, I mean, it's their home territory and you bring them in as an imitation of the fabulous ones. Tom Rich, a guy who was a world heavyweight champion just for a few days, was still world heavyweight champion, national television star. Mm-hmm. I think if it, if it had been Eddie Gilbert and some other younger guy, it may have worked better. I agree with you. Um, you know, it was almost like I looked at it and I'm like, why is Tommy Rich doing this? You know, he is who he is. He's a major star on national cable. And I see him teaming in Memphis with this guy who, in my eyes at the time, decidedly was not a star. Here's a guy who, you know, just got done. He was in a role where he would lose matches on WWF TV. So the whole thing was weird, and I don't know if they planned on turning Eddie from the start, but, you know, I, I, I I thought the whole thing was a bad idea, having new fabulous ones. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they they thought that the Jackie Fargo endorsement was going to go a long way on this one, and, and it just it just didn't. Obviously, nope, it did not. Next, we get Jerry Lawler and Joe Duke in an arm wrestling contest with a strange stipulation: the winner will push the loser's hand into a lit candle. Well, Lawler's losing the battle, so he decides to save himself by throwing fire in the Duke's face. And if you want to see a Jerry Lawler fireball. This is one of the best ones he oh, ever yeah. threw because it was at a close close quarters. They're both sitting down, 
and he just lights the Duke up. I mean, you know, the, the guy's working with one hand. So, I mean, we all know Joe LaDuke was fearless, and this kind of proves it because you're, you're throwing a fireball. You're doing all this with your with your left hand, and a lot can go wrong, and kind of did. But LaDuke, LaDuke being LaDuke, I'm sure he didn't care. No, no, he could take anything. <laughs> <laughs> he was a tough oh, dude. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, this this is a wild angle. And then Memphis in 84 was just a wild territory, period. Lots of crazy stuff going on there. But, uh, yeah, Lolo Duke always a fun feud. And speaking of, Jerry Lawler versus Randy Savage, where it had, it's from the Mid-South Coliseum. And Good Brawl, where LaDuke got involved for disqualification. I, so, yeah, they, they, they bring LaDuke and Savage both show up in Memphis around the same yeah. time at the end of the December 83. And that's like, you know, two crazy men. Showing up. And, and two very, very different kind of crazy men. I wonder what it was like in the Memphis office, like in the middle of 84. Um, you see the world changing, the wrestling world changing around you. For example, on MTV, you've got Cindy Lauper, a major pop superstar, managing Wendy Richter on her way to defeating the fabulous Moolah. And I don't know what it was like anywhere else, but out here, everyone watched that match. And, and I'm just wondering, like, what it was like for Jerry Lawler and, and Jerry Jarrett to just be like, OK, this is what we have to contend with. And that's where they really kind of, you know, put the pedal to the metal as far as outrageous gimmicks, outrageous angles, et cetera. Which they've already been doing anyway for yes. years. But yeah, they, they, but, 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 but you're right. I mean, they, they, they amp up a lot of stuff and they, they, they like I said, they, they get what more current and more pop culture in this time mm-hmm. period. And uh, do a lot of different things, and it helps too that they that they start creating stars, young stars such as Rick Rude uh, destroying Austin Idol in an unscheduled brawl. Uh-huh. Rick Rude was a guy who had been seen on you know TBS as a milk toast baby face, very wooden and green, worked mid south, and you know did some stuff for world class again, same thing. Comes to Memphis, they turn him heel basically immediately, and he he just evolves with the gimmick. He gets more comfortable with the gimmick, and they feed him with Austin Idol, which is extremely smart, and for because of the gimmicks. And this is when Rude beca- really becomes ravishing Rick Rude. So, what was your thoughts when you saw this Rick Rude compared to the old Rick Rude that you had seen earlier? Um, I basically, I remember it feeling like this, this rookie had finally grown up and had figured out, you know, how to market himself as a wrestler. I mean, when I saw him on WTBS, um, in 83 and you're right, he was a milk toast baby face, kind of middle of the card, but you saw that he had potential. Um, he was, you know, he was raw as could be, but you could see, okay, this guy may be becoming something as time goes on. And, you know, yeah, less than a year later, he finds his groove. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, it, it evolves more and more as he moves along in Florida, world-class and Crockett. And then when it's time to go WF, then he's pretty much ready to roll then. And, uh, yeah. It, Rick Rude's got an interesting career, the trajectory as well. So. He was going 
It's like he just he rose up the charts as he went along. Yeah, yeah. he um when he was in the NWA teamed with Fernandez, um, that wasn't going to be like his apex. They had big plans for him. Um, for, for, that was the first thing I wanted to say. It would have been interesting to see what it would have been like had he remained in JCP. But secondly, they they did they gave Rick Rude an a valet in Memphis. I think her name was Angel. That was his girlfriend. Okay. Yeah. Was this the, yeah. was that the first domestic violence angle in pro wrestling history? Because they had her go out with like wearing a veil, and Austin Isle comes out, and she's bruised up, and you know everyone's like, "Oh my god!" Like that. That I guess that's what I'm talking about. Like if you're Memphis, you're yes. really pushing yes. the envelope. Maybe a little too hard because that's that, you know let's let's be honest, that's kind of a tasteless angle. But these guys are trying to survive. That probably was the first the first one I could think of like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had Adrian Adonis so. pushing Miss Linda around, but like this one was a, yeah. a different, like uh, on a different level. Like her face was bruised up. Exactly. So that's number nine. Let's go to volume 10, which is a shorter tape and uh, some uh, more interesting things on here. So we go to the Pacific Northwest to start off with the Dynamite Kid and the Assassin. This would be Dave Sierra. Against Kurt Henning and Buddy Rose, two out of three falls from Portland, December 83, three and a half stars. And then we come back right after that with Donna McKid, Rip Oliver on the Assassin. Against Kurt Henning, Buddy Rose, and Billy Jack Haynes, also from December 83. Um, 83 Portland's just great stuff. Buddy Rose is a babyface, uh, feuding with his old friends. You got Dynamite here. <laughs> Kurt Henning starting to 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 uh, become a guy. Billy Jack is you know making the name for himself. What a fun promotion this was. Yeah, you also had Doctor D. David Schultz there for a while. Um, that, I think this was earlier in '83, but still, yeah, it was a great promotion. One thing I wanted to talk about: Buddy Rose's turn. I don't. I, I think this might have been some of the worst booking I've ever seen. And please let me explain. I'm talking about not Buddy Rose as a babyface, which was due. But Buddy Rose's turn, his turn was that he and Rip Oliver, they were – well, they were both heels. And they both had their heel factions, and there was kind of a strange truce between the two of them. And Buddy Rose signs the Dynamite Kid who Rip Oliver was interested in signing. So Rose and Dynamite Kid have a match. I think it was against Kurt Henning and Billy Jack. They blow a spot and they lose. Rip all, excuse me, Buddy Rose and Dynamite Kid are kind of pointing fingers at each other, and then they start brawling. And Buddy Rose is like signaling Rip Oliver and the assassin to come help him, and instead they side with the with Dynamite Kid over Buddy Rose, and the three of them beat the crap out of Buddy Rose. Buddy Rose, to me, if you want to have a guy turn babyface, make him a good guy, like a good person, who you know, make him appear that way. The good, the bad, the good guy who sometimes uses bad tactics. Instead, you have Buddy Rose. Like he's still totally a heel. Hey guys, come help me beat this guy up, and they turn on him. And to me, that's just that does not lend to sim- babyface sympathy. It's a different way of doing that, uh, doing the angle that you know kind of has been done other places where the heel never really turns face; the other heels turned on right. him. It's a different way of doing it, and. I mean, Rose has a great run as babyface, though. I mean, he gets over. To, I mean, fans are nuts for him. And then when he turns back heel again, there's a gr- another great yes. turn. 
But he, he turns on Matt Bourne, actually calls him a pussy on television, you know, which actually gets through on television in 1984. Twice he calls him <laughs> pussy. And, uh, because we just we played it on Between the Sheets when we did the 84 show. We covered that on the last show and we played the clip of it. Man, what a, what a wild promo that was. But, uh, but yeah, Dynamite Kid, if you've never seen him in Portland, check him out because he's on fire here. Oh, as a word. I mean, if you're watching wrestling, if you're have access to Portland wrestling back then you had to you had to be wondering why this guy wasn't a superstar in a bigger promotion and pretty soon he would be absolutely absolutely next is a very memorable match Ric Flair versus Jerry King Lawler on Memphis television August 1982 where you know this is the only Flair's only appearance in Memphis studio it's a great one Law does a great job with Snow and Flair defending the NWA title against on television. They do a 10-minute time limit. Time limit runs out. Flair has Law in the figure four. Flair demands the match continue. Law makes a comeback. Flair runs for his life. You, you, you give it three and a quarter stars and one of the best angles you've ever seen. I don't know if we've talked about this on this show before or, or any shows we've done. But uh, I know we talk about the Lindsay Arena match a lot, but... What what was your what was your thoughts the first time you ever saw this? I thought it couldn't have been better. Ric Flair comes out and he in the most he starts complimenting the city of Memphis in the most condescending manner imaginable. He's like, "Oh, I expected this would be nothing but rednecks. I saw a couple of pretty girls. I've seen some nice cars. Oh, I guess this place isn't so bad." <laughs> and um then he's about to get in the ring with I forget who, uh, but one of the jobbers, and Jerry Lawler comes out, and he starts complimenting Flair, and he's like, you know, you want to go out there and, and impress everybody. You're not going to impress everybody by being this guy. How about I get in the ring with you? And Pat Hutchinson. Pat Hutchinson, thank you. And Flair just kind of laughs. You're not trying to pull any country jive on me now, are you, Lawler? <laughs> country jive. And I was like, no, no, not me. And then Lawler was like, hey, let's make it really interesting. Let's make it a title match. Well, we both know you're going to win. Come on, just make it interesting. Put the title up. And then they went out there and just killed it for 10 minutes. Uh, Flair is on the verge of beating Lawler. Uh, Flair goes out and asks for more time. And then Lawler, of course, makes the, the monumental comeback and gets the pinfall and the studio crowd is going nuts but they announced that you know the contract was for a 10 minute match and what what happened after that didn't count that's a good dusty screw job in my opinion yeah and and then flares in rage he comes out with jimmy hart he put he gives him a check for twenty five thousand dollars or something ten thousand something like that puts up for a bounty and uh he gets pissed off at lance russell <laughs> and just what a what a great 30 minutes or so of television. That it, was. it really was. Um, it was flair at his best. And that's saying something because now, you know, okay, Rick just got his butt kicked. Now his, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he's no longer doing his act that he's a nice guy. He's happy to be in Memphis. Like all of that's gone. He's the, you know, the heel, uh, looking to have Jerry Lawler's leg broken or whatever he was trying to do, do to him. Yeah, and it is like I said, Ric Flair's only appearance ever in Memphis on on TV, yeah. on, on on television, and I kind of wish he would have made a few more appearances over the years. But it, yeah, that's what makes this special, you know, to see him. Uh, I I would have liked to have seen more of Rick in the studio. I mean, I'm not saying every week, obviously, but 
No, no. You know, no. if he's going to defend the title there Monday night, you know, make an appearance Monday, uh, Saturday morning. I I know he's busy, but I mean, you know, make the Monday night match special. Absolutely, yeah. All right, next we get Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes at the Orange Bowl, Lords of the Ring, where Dusty beats Flair to become the Lord of the Ring. And this, if you watch Changer Wrestle Florida in this time period, this show was heavily promoted yes. on that television, and this was a big deal. Uh, after Magazines had it as a big deal. The Dusty hit was on the cover after the show, bloodied up with the ring, you know, showed off the ring, and they they were really pumping this one up. So uh, what would you think about the, this uh, situation here, Lords of the Ring? I'm probably much more of a fan overall of Dusty Rhodes than I'm going to sound like over the next two or three minutes. Because this is Dusty at his worst, okay? He knows he's on his way out of Florida. And he decides to go out in a blaze of glory by, you know, beating the NWA champion clean in the middle of the ring in a non-title match for, you know, it was almost like this Lords of the Ring thing uh, was bigger than the, that little old NWA championship itself. And I just think, you know, it was it was very egotistical on Dusty's part. If... I don't know for sure if Eddie Graham knew that Dusty Rhodes was definitely leaving. I I think he did, um, but you know you don't you don't do that on your way out of a promotion. You don't give yourself that pat on the back if you're going to do a big win against Ric Flair for you know in that environment. Do it for someone who's not leaving. And I don't know who you would do that for. Mike Graham, uh, Brian Blair. I have no idea. Maybe just don't do it at all. But does you know Dusty? Like I said, he really helped. I, I think Florida was going to die anyway, but he made that death happen a lot faster and a lot easier by by doing what he did. Well, I mean, you're right in a way, and then he takes almost the whole crew with him. To go to Crockett, all the big, the big, at least the big guys, big names in the territory. Wyndham, Rotundo, so, Billy Jack, Ron Bass, and Black Bart, and uh, you know that really hurt them. Yeah, yeah, and other guys, and other guys would bounce around too, and and leave, and yeah, they had to totally re, you know, restart the territory there after Dusty left. I don't think they ever did. But, uh, yeah, they they never really did, but they, you know, they they brought in all kind of new names, and it just. It never really worked the way it did at this time period. This is about the end of the era right here. And Eddie Graham was the referee of this match. So there you go. So it ties Eddie Graham into it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the, it, almost, as, soon as, the, as soon as that crew left, Florida never felt major league again. I mean, they had – yeah, they had Wahoo McDaniel for a while. They got Barry Windham back for a while. Uh, Lex Luger did well there, despite, you know, the myth that he didn't do well, but it never felt like a, a major league promotion after Dusty left. And I just like I said, I just don't think he should have gone out in that blaze of glory. If anything, he should have done a job for Flair. Yeah, you know, you're on your way out. You know, put the NWA title and the NWA champion over. After all those years of Dusty, you know, not being able to beat he he would beat Terry Funk, but he wouldn't get the title. He would beat Harley Race, but he wouldn't get the title. He would beat Ric Flair, but he wouldn't get the title. Like you know, go out the right way. Just okay. After all these times, I have borrowed credibility from the NWA champion and the, and the championship itself. Put the title over. Yep, absolutely. 
Well, next is a different take on Dusty Rhodes as Mike Davis, <laughs> who who had uh, gone through the transformation for weeks on television where he just fell under the spell of Kevin Sullivan, disappeared. He comes back, bleached blonde hair, and he is Dusty Rhodes. He is the real Dusty Rhodes. The other one is Virgil Runnels. <laughs> And uh, you know that this is a fantastic parody of Rhodes, one of the most creative English you've ever seen, and the promotion went nowhere with it. I'll, I'll never understand why – two things. Number one, Florida didn't push that harder. You could make the argument that all it is is a reminder that Dusty is gone, but it was so good that I absolutely would have – I would have used it anyway. Number two, if I'm Dusty in – 85, 86, 87 on WTBS, I give Mike Davis a call and say, Mike, would you be willing to dye your hair again because dot, dot, dot? Well, they made Mike Davis dye his hair again in, 80, in 85 and made him in the rock and roll RPM. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I'm saying, you know, when, when <laughs> Dusty was like looking for something, um, I don't know, something creative, yeah. something new to do with himself, like I, I don't know why they, in some way, shape or form, they would not have brought that Dusty Rhodes back. And Mike Davis, I mean, a guy who was, you know, just a straight-up wrestler, nothing spectacular about him, you know, mainly a babyface his whole career, mm-hmm. you know, and here he comes in this gimmick, and it's like, boom, what a transformation this was. Where'd this guy come from? Where'd this charisma come from? <laughs> really? And, and the best part was, to me, about that angle, Kevin, it was, it was I don't want to say it was believable, I'm trying, it was credible that Kevin Sol- Sullivan would somehow uh, cast his spell over this Mike Davis guy, and now Mike Davis really thinks he's Dusty Rhodes. Exactly. With- because it falls in line with Kevin Sullivan's uh, stuff he's been doing with people. Absolutely. Yeah, it, t- yeah. it totally made sense in the storyline. So you've got Mike Davis doing a perfect Dusty Rhodes impersonation with this giant black X on his forehead. It was nuts. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, another way that Ric Flair was embarrassed in Florida. Ric Flair does a job for Scott McGee on television. As you know, things aren't going well for the legendary Flair on this day. <laughs> as he doesn't take the mid-card or McGee seriously and gets pinned. What's your thoughts on how this angle went down? Uh, I mean, once again, you, you know, you're killing the NWA title. I mean, I like Scott McGee. I thought he had talent. They were pushing him at the time. He was the uh, either the Florida or the Southern heavyweight champion. Florida champion. Okay, yeah. So yeah. even though when sometimes when a baby fails held that title in name, you're kind of the top baby face, but you never were. I mean, it was always Dusty, um, and maybe even a couple of other guys, Mike Graham, etc. But, you know, they, he was a talented guy. He was getting a push. The way they did it, it was almost like Ric Flair beat himself, but the NWA champion shouldn't be out there beating himself. No, but they're really giving Scott McGee a big push here, as uh, he has a match with Ron Bass on this tape, where uh, he beats him in seconds yeah. to defend the toss. So they were really trying to make Scott McGee into a thing in Florida. So, but it just, it, it, I mean, and he was, and he was credible and thing. It just wasn't going to work because he didn't have, he didn't have the charisma that was needed in 1984 wrestling. No, he didn't. And you know, Florida would do that. I wish I, I wish I had a list of Florida and Southern heavyweight champions in front of me because they would 
give a new guy that super push and sometimes it worked out but usually it didn't like they did it with uh, Jim Garvin they did it with Charlie Cook they did it with Mike Rotunda and you know your mileage may vary but you know they gave these guys you know huge breaks and sometimes it worked out but usually it didn't yeah Brian Blair in 84 yep Jesse Barr yeah exactly all right, Ron Bass was a one-man gang, also in 84, where Black Bart helps Bass, Pez Watley evens the size, his gang is turned babyface, studio brawl. We just talked about one-man gang as a babyface in between the sheets, played the angle where they kicked him out of the dressing room. Uh, I love that angle. What were your thoughts? On, yeah, I was going to say, what were your thoughts on on, on his turn and him as a babyface? I, I mean, him as a babyface was interesting. I, it didn't last long or go far. Um, but I remember him, that angle where he gets kicked at, they throw all of his stuff out of the dressing room, and he's just very sad, gathering his belongings in the hallway and walking off. I thought that was a great angle. Yeah, it was one of the first times you ever saw the locker room and stuff going on there on a wrestling show. You didn't see that no. on television like that. No, you didn't. And like I said, I thought it was a very unique and good angle. Um, as far as one man gang as a baby face, eh, I mean, he's he's almost too big. It didn't work out in the long run. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought when I saw the first time I saw one man gang in world class after he had cut all of that hair off and you know had that bizarre mohawk look i was like oh my god he's going to be a huge star and i don't know why he wasn't a bigger star as the one-man gang in the wwf like to me there's a there's a story there's a story oh um I, i was watching a shoot interview i can't remember who it was but gang came up it may have been duggan that said this but they said that that uh, they were going to do a major feud with Hogan, uh, with Gang in '88, and Gang had got somehow, uh, so he got some got in some money outside of wrestling, and he told Vince that he wanted to take time off, and Vince is like, "Well, we're about to do this big thing with you and Hogan." He said, "I want to take time off. <laughs> I want to, you know, you know, go home and and relax for a while." I said, "Well, okay, well, there you go." So he go he goes home, and then when he comes back, they decide to give him the Akeem gimmick, and the rest is history. Wow, I, I uh, yeah. you know what he had matches against Hogan in '87, and he when did he arrive there? Like summer of '87. Yeah, after a while. So yeah, it was uh, early summer. Okay, so uh, right then and there, you'd think that he would get the the major push. I mean, he was coming off a run as UWF champion in a way, minus the minus his physique. He was the perfect WWF guy. I mean, he's got that look. You know, he's a big guy with that look. You'd think. I was thinking that at the time, okay, this guy is going to have a major program with Hogan, and it, it turned out to be just a minor program. Yeah, but yes, that's what supposedly the plan was. So. Uh. Didn't happen for him, sadly. But he got to be Akeem, so there you go. <laughs> it's funny he got he got a way bigger push as Akeem. This ridiculous, I don't even know what it was that he did as as one man gang. Yeah. yeah. All right, uh, next we get Kevin Sullivan versus Blackjack Mulligan in a hangman's noose match where the idea is to hang your opponent. 
Combine that with Sullivan's circus-like ring interest, it's no wonder why so many longtime Florida fans were turned off. Yeah, Florida, you know, kind of like St. Louis in a way, but on a larger scale, we have for so long been this traditional type wrestling territory. And then they do the Kevin Sullivan angle. And now we're in, you know, well in the second year of this angle, and it's getting weirder and weirder and weirder in 84, and boy... What a what a group of characters he had in, in this time period and just all this stuff that was going on. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing that, and by by WWF standards, that was quite the ring entrance. <laughs> and we're talking about Florida here. I think there there's a thing in wrestling that I was talking about someone with who was in the business, and he was like, "Look, if you have an angle." And it's either going to work or it's not going to work. If it doesn't work, you do two th- one of two things. You either drop it or you push it harder. And obviously they, they just p- kept pushing this angle harder and harder. And I, I just think a lot of people were turned off by it. I mean, are you going to go take your kids to go see the devil, devil worshiper guy? Yeah. And Florida was pushed as a, yeah. as a sport. It wasn't pushed like you know 1984 WWF, where everything was a joke. You know, traditionally it was laid out much like Mid South as a sport, and now we've got this coming out. I wasn't a fan. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, next, we get Rick Flair versus Gino Hernandez in Fort Worth, where Gino is, looks like he's about to win the NWA World Title, but still, a French cracked him with a wooden plank. All right, we got two things here. <laughs> All right, Ric Flair and Gino. I mean, come on, <laughs> what a dream match this is, eh? So, and, and so we we get this match here. The you know, t- two guys that you know, God, it would've been awesome to see him. You know, see him have a really great match, a really great finish, and then here comes Telemay French, which would you know made it made sense in that world class angle perspective because she's feuding with Gino, but uh, good lord, Telemay French. Um, when it comes to world class in '84, you know they did a lot of really good stuff in '84. But Stella Mae French, and and you know, to her credit, she got over. Boy, the fans were into that character, into her. We got to give her that. But God, was it not good at all? It wasn't. And I, I will say a couple of things. Um, I went back, and you know, when it came on WWE Network, of course I watched a bunch of the 1984 world class, and yeah, so you gotta give that much. Um, I mean, I I did not even remotely understand how that character could get over, but it did. For, I remember, and wow, this is 35 years ago, Gino Hernandez first comes back to world class after he'd been out of the wrestling business for over a year. And he comes back with a splash. They put the uh, American Championship on him, and they put the Texas Championship on him. So he's walking around with two belts. And they're talking about how Gino Hernandez beat Ric Flair in the finals for the Texas uh, the Texas Championship Tournament. And- Which was weird because Flair was a world champion, but yeah. Yeah. And no, was I think this might have happened. Yeah, he was. No, he was the world he champion the belt in back. the tournament. Yeah, it was in June. Okay. June twenty third. For yeah. for like I would say twenty twenty five years, I was like. So yeah. Yeah, real quick, Flair is not only in the Texas Heavyweight Title Tournament, but he's also wrestling Ronnie Garvin for the national television title, <laughs> like in the same time span. The world champion. I forgot all about that. 
Amazing. So, uh, for uh, years, like 20, 25 years, I was like, yeah, right. You know, they just made it up like they're always making stuff up. But no, I knew someone who was at the Texas tournament that night. And he's like, yeah, Flair was in it. and He lost in the finals. So th- I was I was taken aback by that. But it really happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a shame we didn't get Flair and Gino more often. God. Yeah. I mean, you know, the possibilities are endless. I mean, I if I had to guess, I would say if if Gino had not died, he would have wound up in JCP at some point, either oh, in a yeah. faction with Flair or feuding with Flair or something. But yeah, that's I, <laughs> that would have been something else. And I think those two, it, it it was almost like you could feel a natural jealousy between the two of those guys. Yeah. When like when Flair would talk about Gino on world class television, he didn't talk about he wasn't like he was overly dismissive to the point where it felt forced. Yeah. All right. Uh, next, we have Hulk Hogan training Mean Gene Okerlund for their upcoming tag team match. You'd say it's kind of funny, but these are the kind of things that drove the purest nuts. <laughs> talk about that. How how the 1984 wrestling fan reacted to all this you know it's it's funny because over time i have grown to enjoy that segment um i can laugh at it now but back then man i hated it i hated it so much i thought it was i always knew obviously that pro wrestling was a work but at least it looked like a work or it looked like you know it was like being how do i put this one, I was watching some dumb movie in the 80s, and a, a plane was about to take off, and the hero in the movie, like, runs up and, like, catches up to the plane and climbs in it. I'm like, okay, come on. that you know I don't care who it is. That's never going to happen. Uh, but you, I didn't like it when I said that in wrestling. I didn't like characters like George the Animal Steel or the Moondogs because it was obvious, you know, these guys aren't athletes. They're a joke. But when you have something like Gene Okerlund getting in the ring against Mr. Fuji and George Steele, I mean, to me, it just crossed that line. And I, I hated it so much. I can't even tell you. And then they, I must have seen that skit on regular television like four or five times in a month because they ran it on all of their shows. So, yeah, at the time, it was just I, like I said, I, I hated every frame of it, and now I've chilled out. I think it's funny, you know, Gene Oakland going up to the hot dog vendor. Hey, buddy, how about a brat? Come on, Gene, we're training. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I understand how this mother had to be like culture shock for the traditional wrestling fans to see this type of stuff, but you know, nowadays it just it just seems like you know just some some funny angle, yeah. you know, and, and it popped the house in Minneapolis. Yeah. I mean, they did business. That's true. And it was over there. You, you so. got Mr. Fuji and George Steele in, in, in a tag team match in the main event. And it drew. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Next with the road warriors, the fabulous ones in Memphis. These two teams would have some matches in Memphis and AWA and had a memorable feud in a way that would become memorable in shooting interviews afterwards. First, beginning with the Road Warrior shooting interview years ago in 2000, where Road Warrior Hawk told the story about uh, their match in Minneapolis, where uh, they had a little issue going on, and then how the Fabs got them back in, in Puerto Rico. What happened was in Minneapolis, 
Um, the Road Warriors are supposed to do a job for the Fabulous Ones. And, and Hawk gets in the ring and tells them, I'm not doing the finish that Vern sent down. And the Fabs are like, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> so, so that becomes a big problem. And then they come back to Puerto Rico a year later and have a match. And the Fabs change the finish of that match where the Road Warriors are supposed to beat them. But the Fabs started brawling with the Sheep Herders on the baseball field and brawled all the way to the back. That way, the Road Warriors won by count out. And then Hawk was so pissed off, he went to the hotel and was banging on Steve Kern's door for hours, wanting to get at him. Tell you what. Yes. <laughs> a couple of things. Number one, based on some stuff I've seen on Steve, I've heard about Steve Kern, I wouldn't put all my money on Road Warrior Hawk in that one. No. Number two. Uh, I've been telling too many stories this week. It's it's 1987. I'm in a bar. I'm kind of chatting with uh, Jim Cornette and Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane's there. And on the television, there's AWA Wrestling. And it's Pauly Dangerously uh, uh, and the new Midnight Express. Conrad and Rose. Yeah. Couldn't think of their names. And Hawk sees this and he yells over, hey, there's the real Midnight Express. And everyone just kind of laughs. So I guess no matter whatever happened, <laughs> got fixed because they everyone was getting along at this point. Yeah. I think a man was Kern. That was the, the problem. Not Lane. Stan was Stan. He was always a cool guy. It was Steve that had the, that was the hothead, you know, and that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's the real banana express. <laughs> Great. All right. Uh, back to another WF, uh, TNT segment. Mean Gene and Adrian Adonis take a tour of New York City's Bowery section with Dick Murdoch, in which he says a silly and entertaining segment. Oh, my God. That was a great segment. That was UWWF. That was good. I, I was sitting, you know, I'm sitting there. I hated the Gene Okerlund thing, but even at this time, I, I absolutely loved this segment. It was so funny. Murdoch was funny. Adonis was funny. Okerlund was always funny. I mean, you had unscripted stuff like some girl yelling out the window at Adrian. He's like telling her to get back in the house. Esmeralda, get back in the house. <laughs> yeah, and then then he was uh. Yeah, that that guy that was supposed to be his <laughs> uncle. I mean, it's Uncle Joe. <laughs> uncle Joe. He's playing along, you know. And Adonis is trying not to break character, and yeah, and Murdoch's being Murdoch, and oh, it was, it was hilarious. And here's this guy, Adrian Adonis, who does not at all sound like he's from New York because he's not. But and oh, and hey, that's a, a nice little snippet of New York City in 1984, man. It was yeah. still a pretty dangerous place. Yeah. All right. Next, we have Jerry Lawler and Rick Rude, and where uh, Lawler gets whipped with a with a belt afterwards by Rude and Angel, which is uh, boy, what a feud this is. And we also have not at, right after this is a uh, Rude smashing in Lawler's windshield a baseball bat, which that came after Lawler pile drove Angel. Yeah, this is Rude's first major feud in his career, and boy, what. What a wild one this was, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, Jerry Lawler, I think, is in the argument for greatest babyface of all time. And if you are getting your break by feuding with Jerry Lawler, I mean, you're a lucky dude. 
I mean, they really set Rick Rude yeah. up. I mean, they gave him the, the the valet. They put him with Jimmy Hart. They feuded him with Lawler. They teamed him with Bundy. I mean, they gave him a lot. And I'm not saying he didn't earn it. I'm not saying he didn't hold up his end because he did really well in Memphis. And I remember, you know, seeing him in Memphis and then seeing him in Florida. And it, it looked, it was apparent to me that there was a new star in pro wrestling. And he, when he arrived in world class and they made him the, the quote world's heavyweight champion, unquote, I mean, I totally bought him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And this feud got a lot of play on those, uh, like the wrestling gold uh-huh. videotapes and those tapes when they, when they came out in the early nineties. So that, that, that exposed a lot of people to this era of recruit in Memphis as well. That never really saw it before. No. And, and you're right. It's, you know, his earliest stuff and he picked up really quickly. He did a good job. I mean, like I said, I, I know they gave him the opportunity, but he made the most of that opportunity. Yeah. All right, next we got Tommy Rich and Jackie Fargo against Rick Rune, King Kong, Bundy. Brady Gilbert killed Rich with a foreign object. He explained his actions, and he's obviously the heel, but he's getting cheered anyway. <laughs> this, of course, after the turn. So, yeah, because the fans hated that team, and now he just turned heel, and they wanted to cheer him now. Yay, the team's over with. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, that was, you know, obviously a, a major misstep by the um, by the by the promotion. But you were, now you remember the turn where Tommy Rich turned on Eddie Gilbert or Eddie Gilbert turned, turned on Tommy Rich. I'm sorry. Absolutely. The WFI angle with Pete, Pete Letterberg. Absolutely. I was going to say uh, Howard yes. Baum was part of that angle Baum, Pete Letterberg. and yeah. I'm friends with Howard Baum. So it's kind of cool. I just had him on stick to wrestling. Yeah, Pete Letterberg has done Between the Sheets Excellent. Uh, quite a few times in, their, in the early days. And actually, we covered, I think, I don't know if we actually covered that week or not, but he told the story on the show, among other stories that on and off the air, uh, but <laughs> regarding Eddie. But, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, he was he knew about the whole time, and him and Eddie, you know, talked it out and how they planned it and everything. And, yeah, I mean – that was an amazing piece of television right there. Absolutely. Howard and Pete on to fame and fortune after that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, next we get go to world class again where Buddy Roberts decked David Manning during an interview, which set up a match where they wrestled in Fort Worth where Buddy wrestled with one arm tied behind his back. Oh, uh, David Manning. Well, David Manning's got kind of like a polarizing figure online these days. People, uh, they get annoyed by him and how he was portrayed on television. What's your thoughts on him? Uh, I think David Manning enjoyed a little bit too much spotlight in world class. Um, I think he made himself too big a part of the matches. And then we get to this angle where he's fighting Buddy, Buddy Roberts. I mean, th- this is a different time in wrestling where we would ask ourselves questions like, how could David Manning ever be allowed to – referee a Freebirds match ever again if he has this kind of a personal issue with a member of the Freebirds. So obviously I didn't like it. I guess the thing about David Manning is is that if you were in the era and you knew about David Manning's past, you may you would understand a little bit better because David Manning was an accomplished amateur wrestler. Um, the reason why he didn't really make him pro wrestling was because of his size. And then he went and became a referee and office guy. He was very close to the Von Erics. He was Fritz's right-hand man a lot of times. He was a booker in world class on different occasions. So there's a lot going on. But, yes, 
if you're somebody in Massachusetts watching this, you're thinking, what the hell's going yeah. on here? You know, <laughs> exactly. So that that's why you're you're, you're thinking that more than anybody like in the in the metroplex would be thinking about. Yeah, you know? I I still you know I still even. But you're right. I mean, he was overpushed. Yeah, I mean, if, if even if you're in Dallas, you're like, okay, you know, the referee is not supposed to be fighting the wrestlers and then going back and being the referee again. It's just that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah, that, that that is kind of weird. But at least it's Buddy Roberts. You know, if, if he was going against Terry Gordy, then, yeah, that's way different. But at least it's Buddy Roberts who's looked at as the – you know, the third wheel, the lackey, yeah. you know, and he would have, and David would have stuff with Gary Hart, of course, the manager. So you would get that type of stuff. So it could have been a lot worse is what that way. It could have been a lot worse. You know, my friends and I, when we used to go to wrestling, we had a rule and that is that you had to, you had to just drop what you knew. You had to put on your dumb hat and just pretend it was real because that's the only way to enjoy it. And it turns out that that wasn't the case, but that's the way I was back then, that I wanted to turn my brain off and pretend it was real for an hour. And when stuff like that happens, that becomes hard to do. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. All right. Speaking of uh, Gordy, Terry Gordy was another con. Uh, Good Brawl, Freebirds, and that, and Devastation Corporate all get involved, three and a half stars. And then, God, what I mean, those two, these two guys, uh, of course, this leads up to the uh, reunion arena match on Thanksgiving. And good Lord, oh, what a bloodbath. That bath. was I mean, amazing. Even by 1984 standards, I mean, that was, you know, I mean, the, the amount of blood that was spilled by both of those guys in that match was incredible. Yeah, tremendous stuff. God, Gordy and. Uh, and, and Khan were it was a great match for each other. Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was a little bit weird though the booking because like between the Khan turning on the Freebirds and Thanksgiving night where Gordy shakes Kerry Von Erich's hand, Kerry was the referee. Um, I mean the Freebirds were just in a really weird place. They they were tweeners, and I think with the possible exception of like the NWA World Champion, it's hard to have tweeners in wrestling. It doesn't work. Well, they become. I mean, well, this that. Well, that night, Gordy becomes, you know, basically a babe, a full time babyface because that's where he shakes uh, Gary's right. hand. Right. I'm saying like before that, they were in, the, in yeah. that tweener role. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I mean, but the fans were cheering. They wanted to cheer them. Anyway. I think you're right. So this gave them way. To, this gave them a way to do it. Yep. All right. We we mentioned Buddy Rose and Matt Bourne earlier. They have there's a no DQ match with Buddy Rose and Matt Bourne. Excellent match. And you said you surprised that Bourne didn't get a bigger push in the territories, three and three quarter stars. I think we learned years later why Bourne never got a big push in the bigger push in the territories. (laughs) That's hard to argue with. I saw that match again recently, and it was an excellent match. It really was. Um, Portland, you know, it was an underrated territory. They did some good stuff out there. They had some good matches, especially around this time. Yeah, and these two have. As you talk about real life in wrestling, I mean, Buddy Rose was married to Matt Bourne's sister. Yeah. And then you mentioned domestic abuse, say he supposedly beat her up. Yeah. So, I mean, you, I mean, you, you have all kinds of real life things going on here. And, uh, I mean, and yeah, I mean, it's, it adds, to, all that stuff adds to things. It adds to the, the whole thing. And, and again, Portland people, people in the Northwest know these things. And it, and it, you know, it's more of a localized deal. Yeah. And, uh, 
Yeah, these two are great workers, but Bourne's problems fall around for his career. Uh, and that's why he he didn't become a bigger star. I, I can't argue with that because like he always he, he always I always looked at him when he was like in world class or in Portland, and I'd be like, you know, why doesn't this guy have a bigger stage? And I mean, you know, a, a lot of the guys who were on the bigger stage also had issues. So it wasn't excuse Matt Bourne, but I, yeah. I remember, you know, I haven't seen this in a long time, but you know, they buddy Playboy Buddy Rose comes out on Portland TV with his new wife Tony Bourne. He's like, I'm not the Playboy anymore. I'm settling down. And you just think, okay, he's in a feud with Matt Bourne, but he marries Matt Bourne's sister. And it was real. I, I When I first heard about it, I'm like, yeah, right. But no, they got married. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Two more matches left on this tape. Magnum T against Killer Khan from Oklahoma City. Buddy Landell and Ernie Ladd. Uh, KO Junkyard Dog at ringside trying to feather him. Bayface made a save. And Budro ends up getting tarred and feathered. Oh, the tarring and feathering. Mitsoff really put, picked that up in 84. It's a, that is a Bill Dundee Memphis deal that he brings yeah. in. and They were doing it like crazy. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's funny. Magnum TA and, and Killer Khan have a match, and somehow it's Buddy Landell that winds up getting tarred and feathered. <laughs> he yeah. was such a talent. And then we... Oh, guy, we talked about it so many times on this show. Yeah, him and Butch and this yeah. one are just yeah. amazing together. And speaking of Butch, the last match on this tape is a street fight, ghetto street fight between JYD and Butch from New Orleans. And you look at JYD in this era, and you know he's he's not in the best of shape, and for for his reasons too. And Reed's. Get becoming, you know, one of the best performers in the business. And it just seems like, you know, it's like a changing of the guard in a way between uh, JYD and Butch. Passing the torch, kind of, sort of, is here in Mid-South. I mean, it always looked to me like they were going to pass the torch in Mid-South. That was the plan all along, and it just didn't happen the way they wanted it to or it should have. But, I mean, I want to say something like, you know, I was 19 years old in 1984, and when I started reading about Ghetto Street Fight, I'd be like, oh, come on, man. It wasn't even cool back then. (laughs) Something you just kind of – Yeah, but they were – they were fights, though. Yeah, but yeah, the, the ghetto thing, of course, we all know what that's yeah. about. But yeah, I mean, they were they were fights for real. So no, they were. They were a, I mean, Butch, yeah. Butch, you look at Butch Reed, and, you're, and he's a guy. I mean, I we 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 had a whole show on Butch Reed, but I thought Butch Reed should have had a way it bigger is. career than he did. Butch Reed was awesome. And this is the best best stuff you can get out of JYD as he has a match at this point in time. You're not going to get a, a great straight wrestling match from JYD. Excellent point. In '84. So, yeah, play to his strength. Exactly. All, all right, that's it for this show, John. Go ahead and uh, plug away. Oh well, if you enjoyed hearing me here on uh, on Bad Street, you'll definitely enjoy hearing Stick to Wrestling. It is a sixty-minute show on classic wrestling that we do every week. For the most part, we do stick to wrestling. It's me and Sean Goodwin. We usually have a guest. Uh, this. The next few shows, we just did a show that concentrated on the WWF in the summer of 1989. We plan on doing okay. NWA summer of 1989 next week. Um, and then we're looking at like summer of 
84, summer of 79, you know, marking the 25th and 40th anniversaries of those summers. So that's pretty much pl- what we're planning on doing uh, until the end of August. And it's easy to find. Just put Stick to Wrestling in your whatever search engine you're using and, and check it out. I enjoy And, yeah, check it out. And like I said, we keep it to 60 minutes per week. There you go. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. And always some interesting discussions on that show. And well, thank pop, you. And, you so. know, the way we, t- the way I see Stick to Wrestling, it's like a 1980s Ric Flair title defense. It's usually four stars or better. It goes 60 minutes, and at some point our asses are showing. <laughs> there you go. That's Stick to that. Wrestling in a nutshell. All right. next. Yeah, there you go. Next time me and John hook it up for uh, this show. We'll be discussing Volume 11 and hopefully Volume 12. Volume 11, we will be talking about Eddie Gilbert turning on Tommy Rich and that famous angle. We'll have New Japan Junior action from the early 80s featuring all the top names in that era. We'll have um, more world class. We'll have Midnight Express uh, Mania in Mid-South as we have a lot of Midnight Express matches coming up. And uh, yeah. It should be a lot of stuff. So if you love the Midnight Express, the next show is definitely for you. So definitely check that out when we hook it back up again. So, John, definitely appreciate it, man. We'll do this again very, very soon. Thank you for having me on. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Yeah, we sure do. So, uh, and real quick, make sure you, uh, if you haven't listened yet, listen to Cover to Cover, everyone. My new uh, podcast venture with Rob Naylor as we will be discussing wrestling magazines and our love affair with them and uh we'll be doing shows on the magazines themselves we'll be having guests on down the line talking about their love of wrestling magazines and sharing their stories so should be really really great stuff so definitely check that out and of course check out between the sheets every monday when it drops so uh yeah and it's on bad street whenever we do those too so you know where to follow us so check it out all right thanks everyone listening and so long from the peach state of georgia i'm going to kansas city baby kansas city here i come i'm going to kansas city baby kansas city here i come they got some mighty pretty women there Take a train, but if I have to walk, you know I'm going there just the same. I'm going to Kansas City, baby. Kansas City, here I come. They got some mighty pretty women there.